Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, we're talking about high inflation and how it's having impacts on food banks, as well as a bevy of other social impact issues. Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. How are you? Always just trying to, always just trying to keep up. Last week was uh, a little weird from the financial side. I'm glad we're not a financial podcast, but uh, a few things went sideways. And, you know, I think that comes back to the larger issue of inflation going on. That is a great segue into our first story that is talking about some of those broader trends, economic trends that you were talking about, namely inflation. And our lead story comes from The Chronicle of Philanthropy, which is reporting that highflation is continuing to impact many nonprofits, but food banks in particular. And it turns out that many food banks across the United States are being hit from both directions. Essentially, you have more people needing food assistance because of higher food prices and food banks having trouble keeping up with that higher demand because of higher food and supply chain issues. So yeah, lots of food banks are, are feeling the pinch, both with supply and demand kind of impacting their ability to, to provide for, for folks. The article goes on to state that some of Feeding America's food pantry partners have closed because of dwindling donations and higher costs for receiving and delivering food. Others have less food on their shelves, even though they have higher demand. So you kind of have the economics of this hitting where it hurts in both directions. And unfortunately, the inflation numbers came out and it slowed marginally with the most recent data, but inflation continues to be a really serious problem hitting, in this case, food pantries where it hurts. I think it's important to note that the general uh, consumer price index, CPI, is it's not accurate for everyone. It is not inclusive of what might be hitting some people that are maybe more dependent on travel by car or at the grocery store for different types of materials. But the high level here is Compared to last year at this time, we're about 50% down in where we have received and passed barrel food donations and about 20% down from food drives in our collection of food from the grocery stores, says the executive director, Tyra Jackson there. And it's, it, it's tough. It is tough because you're also talking about donations that may have come and picked up by truck, by car, and there are a few donations being made in addition to people needing it more. So, you know, you're going to see this certainly at food, food pantries, among others, but something that we really wanted to pull out as a, as a major, a major narrative that is only going to continue as, as inflation and gas prices continue to, to pinch organizations that serve the most vulnerable in our. Yeah, George, I think that's a great analysis. And just as an aside, I was talking with a colleague at our company who she and her partner volunteered at a food bank down in the Nashville area. And when they were volunteering there, they found out that the food bank was actually closing two weeks later and that all of those resources were disappearing. So this is very real. This is being felt tangibly by a lot of people, unfortunately, the most vulnerable people. And just calling out to an article we read 
were featured on this podcast almost a year ago now. But when you look at the statistics of folks on food stamps or folks needing food assistance, it is much more broad and diverse than I think a lot of Americans realize. And that food insecurity is a much bigger and yeah, a, a much bigger problem than I think most people realize. So something will continue to follow. Great. Should we move into our summary articles? Let's do it. Our first article from the summary comes again from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. And this is that nonprofits on both sides of the abortion issue are seeing an increase in donations. This was something that we predicted. It's not that hard a prediction to make. Something we talked about would happen uh, a couple weeks ago, of course, with the draft Supreme Court decision propelling Roe versus Wade. And at this point, how the Supreme Court is poised to strike that down back into the forefront of the narrative here. And there are so many organizations on both sides of this issue, local organizations, national organizations. And this is now the most important or most salient, I should say, policy debate in America right now. So no surprise that nonprofits are seeing an increase in donations. It will be interesting to see how long this lasts. We often talk about how giving because of various news events and attention to these issues have very short life cycles. We talked about donations to Afghanistan, which lasted, everyone was talking about Afghanistan for about 10 days and then nothing, right? So it'll be interesting to see here, especially as it relates to broader kind of political narratives in the United States. The one difference with this is that that decision from the Supreme Court has actually not been officially dropped down yet. It's expected to be released in June. So that that news cycle will get another bump in June when it eventually does drop. But, but what's your take on this, Joel? Yeah, it's it's kind of hard because we're we're still just sort of pulling in this article at anecdotal evidence and narratives, large narratives like Planned Parenthood, Federation of America talking about how spokesperson there saying they got 70,000, 70,000 new supporters and that had signed on with the organization either as donors or volunteers and had received uh, tens of thousands of new one-time gifts. And the thinking is that if Roe is overturned, the organization's base of supporters are only going to continue to grow and counter narratives there. Pro-life across America, probably one of the larger groups has not seen a rise in donations since the leak, but other smaller ones have said there's a couple extra thousand here or there coming in. So still I, I, I'm hesitant to draw macro narratives other than to say there's going to be an increased amount of volume here. I think this is the first sort of earthquake, social earthquake, this announcement. Ripples are starting to be felt, but I think the big one's still to come when potential actual decision well, would be landing. That would be the summer, right? Nick, do you know I, I don't know why July is in my mind. Yeah, I think end of June, July, it has something to do with the, the docket. Recession. Yeah. yeah, so we'll see. But within the next one to two months, generally. I would say from a strategy standpoint, this was the first precedent, but the, the wave of news and attention is going to be very, very intense. And as all things intense, it will burn brightly. And briefly, unfortunately, and then come down to that steady drumbeat. So 
you are an organization that is near or adjacent to this topic, I would be very much prepared for how you pull in monthly sustaining donors in that moment of emotion when emotions are at its peak because the work is going to take quite some time and it's not a one and done. It is something that should should be part of a, a, a longer term movement that is is going to take a lot of resources. Absolutely. That's a great framing. I, for one, am done with earthquakes for, for another decade. No more <laughs> society-altering earthquakes. But unfortunately, we have another one to talk about, and we're framing this around a press release from Independent Sector, which is a national membership organization that brings together nonprofits and foundations and corporate giving partners, but they put out a press release acknowledging the violence in Buffalo over the weekend. That being that over the weekend, a white supremacist went into a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, shot 13 people, 11 of whom were black and 10 of whom died. This was an overt act of racism and white supremacy. It was very, very clear. And we see the nonprofit community responding here. I, I don't really know what more to to like what nonprofits can can do about this. This is this is hard, a hard, very hard problem to solve. And of course, there's lots of organizations that work in this space, the Southern Poverty Law Center and civil rights organizations that, of course, over the past couple of days have been really highlighting how national political discourse is lending itself to this these far-right ideologies and extremist ideologies. But yeah, just unfortunately, an, another tragic day in a long string of mass shootings that we experience in this country. We saw the narrative, certainly, of gun rights and organizations like Our Town saying reasonable things like, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't allow citizens to run around with assault rifles. These high-capacity magazines, the ability to, to do that much damage in that period of time. There was another narrative around how this was actually streamed on Twitch, which can lead to copycats and narratives that this shooter was partially inspired by Christchurch shooting, which was also incredibly terrible. But this sort of mimicry of when people see it, it is a, a dog whistle and just very dark motivation for, for certain people that clearly need help. Like this is somebody who needs folks that are drawn to this type of thought, unfortunately, and this type of action. Then there's a new piece that seemed to be coming out, which I am starting to see nonprofits touch on, which is the narrative around replacement theory. And I'm not going to go into it in so much as, you know, giving it any sort of, I, even the word theory there, it is, it is a white supremacist fever dream. And I don't curse on this podcast, but I would if I could, because it's, it's a narrative that is unfortunately used because it's pulled into media narratives and reiterated on shows like Tucker Carlson, but it has a very, very dark and dangerous extreme narrative to it. And so there may be opportunities for if this does touch on a nonprofit's work in association with, you know, immigration, anything that supports black or brown people and their rights in this country to take a look at it and see where your voice on it could uh, could lend a, a larger and a more clarifying narrative on it. Absolutely. George, I couldn't agree more. And quite frankly, I want to see tech companies take a 
far more aggressive stance on combating this. Quite frankly, it's unacceptable that the video was live streamed and it's just, it's so you type it into Google. It's the first thing you see that is unacceptable. And I, I would love to see greater efforts behalf of big tech to work with nonprofits and civil society to, to attempt to mitigate this because quite frankly, it's the pervasiveness of these kind of fringe ideas. And, and I know that's a whole other thing, but I think that there can be a lot more done. And I think that nonprofits and civil society should be invited to play a role in that. Yeah. I don't know what the right answer is. I get worried sometimes about the narratives that take hold and whether or not it's used as an excuse to go after big tech. The truth is Twitch took that down within two minutes, which is a heck of a lot more impressive in terms of a time frame than what Facebook did, a company 10x its size with Facebook Live. The truth is the ability to publish on the web can't be fully blocked. And by saying like, if only it was taken down, what, in 30 seconds? If only it was taken down in 10 seconds? I just don't understand. The, the channeling of the social solution can't be a faster form of censorship would have stopped this. I'm not, I'm not buying that as a solution. Giving that child, that 18-year-old, maybe not access to a assault rifle would be maybe where I start, followed by, again, pointing toward being very careful when someone's consuming certain types of content in an extreme environment. And also this individual was given access to body armor. And so the whole narrative of good guy with a gun didn't matter because this person was actually shot at and it didn't matter because we have turned extremists into super soldiers with over-the-counter shit you can get at Walmart. So I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not buying a, if only Twitch took it down in goddamn two minutes. I'm not, I'm not buying that sale. That's fair. That's a fair, that's a fair argument. I, I agree with you. The much more proactive way of dealing with this is... Uh, gun laws. And New York actually has this red flag gun law that should have prevented the shooter from accessing this firearm and for whatever reason. Um, yeah, I haven't seen the full narrative. I mean, just I haven't seen the full narrative, but you know, there's more there's yeah. more guns than people in this country. So I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I agree. But our thoughts are with the uh, the families and everyone affected by by this fire. Our next story comes from news.artnet.com. And this is about the Guggenheim Museum, which has long resisted calls to drop the Sackler name, the Sackler family being the, the family owners of the Purdue Pharma Corporation, has finally quietly removed the Sackler name from, from the building. The Guggenheim has come under lots of criticism and there's been sit-in protests at the museum in an attempt to bring to light how this family's money is, is, imp is, you know, highlighted throughout this museum as a donor. And yeah, George, I'll throw this to you. I think I have a complicated thoughts here. And being a New Yorker, we're both New Yorkers. You walk through any museum, the Guggenheim, the Met, every exhibit is a who's who of corporate power in America. Half the Met is named after the Koch brothers, you know? So it's, yeah, I wonder what your take is on this. This kind of dovetails a bit also with when we were talking about how Russian oligarchs were giving in the West to legitimize 
and cause wash disreputable actions and reputation and to build themselves up. The nonprofit industry does offer this sort of pathway to respectability at a price. And the question is, is it appropriately priced? Should that be for sale? I think this is a big move because clearly the Sackler name like, has donated quite a bit to, to the arts and the arts are incredibly important, but maybe not as important as the fact that what they have done to drug addiction in this country is probably unparalleled from other companies in terms of its devastation. And maybe you don't give them the social acceptance pass, but hopefully this is something that reverberates out there that it's also hard if you're an art, I, would, I try to put on the other side of it. Like there's somebody on the fundraising team of a struggling museum trying to preserve the, you know, history and legacy of fill in the blank type of art that already struggles and to say like, oh, you're not allowed to take, you know, money from somebody that happened to make it from oil from this. So like, you know, where do you draw the line? I mean, I draw the line there, Sacklers, but you know, it is, it, it makes, it makes for an interesting conversation, I think in philanthropic communities and maybe even one that just to bring it back to a listener right now, you might want to have with, you know, your board and your supporters being like, as you know, who would we not take money from? If we did, why, what would we do? You know, I think there's a lot of folks that take it and be like, oh, you can make a donation, but uh, sorry, we can't name you. Like, what did you just do there? Like, all right, we're, we're playing this weird sort of moral shell game. Yeah. I think that's as an interesting analysis. And to your point, I would not want to be the fundraiser, um, responsible for that, but definitely something to talk about within your organization. Another organization that's been doing a lot of talking within itself is the Hollywood Farm Press Association, which you may know as the obscure organization that is responsible for hosting and promoting the Golden Globes in Hollywood. So the Hollywood Farm Press has been criticized pretty substantially in the past couple of years for, and I think rightly so, an incredible lack of diversity, kind of opaque voting processes, and as it turns out, this organization, which is a nonprofit, actually, is reincorporating itself as essentially a business. They're selling off assets. They're going to drop their nonprofit status and attempt to boost the Golden Globes as a ceremony, I guess. I'm not as well-versed in pop culture as nearly anyone, but it's kind of an interesting move. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was just funny that it didn't even dawn on me that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association was a nonprofit. And there are a lot of nonprofits out there operating for, for better or worse or for interesting. And I'm, I'm always curious when there's a transition either from a nonprofit to for-profit, for-profit to nonprofit. I tend to see this a lot less, the, the move. And I'm just curious to watch what the, the net effect is. If anything interesting comes of it, you know, we'll bring it up. But, you know, good luck. Sorry you're leaving the team. Am I? I don't know. If it, if it gets us, Ricky Gervais, one more year of cringeworthy, self-loathing Hollywood criticism, I'll sign up for that highlight reel. Yeah, as long as, you know, I feel maybe it touch better that any profit they happen to be making off of that particular spectacle isn't 
tax tax subsidized. Make mm. you feel a touch better, maybe. There you go. All right. How about a feel good story, George? Sounds perfect. All right. This is from a local NBC affiliate, KGWA.com, out of Oregon. And it talks about an Oregon nonprofit that's on a mission to bring awareness to plastic pollution by turning trash into treasure and has landed a permanent display at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in uh, Washington, D.C. And essentially, they've processed 37,000 tons of plastic from Oregon's beaches, and they've created 87 works of art. And the art has, looking at some of the pictures, kind of like wide-ranging implications, but the or vision, it's a wide vision, but it seems to me that you're keeping trash out of the ocean and creating something beautiful sounds like a, a winning combination. You take a look at this, just incredibly creative to take the exact problem that is destroying sea life and turn it into incredible works of art, which then force people to, to see this. And, you know, there's this beautiful picture of a turtle created by all of the plastic junk and it just hits you so tangibly to see something at one strikingly beautiful something you'd associate with nature but then realize that 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 is exactly what these animals are consuming in the wild increasing amounts of plastic which have a devastating devastating impact on the ecosystem could be ideas also as you work on various issues of how do i take the thing that is the the biggest threat and turn it into the medium of awareness there's something beautiful about this. I love it. Thanks, George. Thanks, Nick. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks, as always, to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 